So today is the second message in the Gospel of John in this series that I'm calling Into the Mystic. And when we hear the word mystic, we think of mystery a little bit, that there are some things that we don't fully understand. And that is quite true in the Gospel of John. There's some symbolism in this Gospel that takes us some time to get a hold of and to get to the point the author is making. And today, what we want to do is remind you of the progression of thought. This is my progression of thought for the series over the next couple of months. The inspiration of this series came from a song that goes way back to the 70s by Van Morrison called Into the Mystic. And in this song, there is a sailor that is trying to make his way back to shore where his love is waiting for him. But if we can use that metaphor for a moment that all of us as we take a voyage through this world, we are eventually going to reach the shore of God's love in the presence of God when we uh, meet him as we uh, face eternity as we step through that doorway. And so I use that as a metaphor to be able to think a little bit about the whole world of the ocean and sailing as a way to get a hold of this gospel and what it's trying to communicate. So the symbolism in the gospel of John come from seven statements, as you saw in the video earlier. And then we said last week that there are seven lights along the shore that continue to cast out hope for us. And you can catch last week's uh, service on YouTube if you missed it. These seven lights along the shore then set us on a voyage to try to reach the shore in a way of fully understanding what God is trying to do in this world. But we will not get to the shore without going through stormy waters. And then finally, we will make a safe arrival because this is the God who is mighty to save. So, the purpose of this book, as we said last week, is Jesus did these signs in the presence of his disciples so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing we may have life in his name. When you read the term eternal life in the Gospel of John, it's not talking about life after we give, have, take our last breath. It is talking about a life that begins now that extends on in to the ages to come. And so this idea of the life of the ages to come is what's encompassing this idea of life that is found in Jesus because he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate of the sheep, the good shepherd, resurrection and life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. These are the seven metaphorical statements that Jesus makes uh, that about himself. And then we said that there are these mystical moments for the, those that are watching Jesus' public ministry. As we see him change the water to wine, heal a royal official's son, heal a paralytic, feed the multitudes, walk on water, heal a blind man, and then raise Lazarus from the dead. All of this, as you can see, is in that first section of the Gospel of John, chapters 1 through 11. What's most important for us to understand before we look at chapter 2 and 3 of the Gospel of John is to understand how John develops characters in his book. There are at least 72 characters that are mentioned 
in the Gospel of John. And they're all to help us understand what it means to have life eternal. These are more than just historical characters, though. They are symbols as well. And in many ways, the thing that happens in the course of the Gospel of John is to help us see that some individuals that he mentions will pop up in some of the other Gospels as well, but some stand alone. For example, in a moment, we're going to talk about Nicodemus. He appears in none of the other Gospels, which is a, a little bit mysterious when you think about the importance of the conversation that he has with Nicodemus. Well, what we find is the Gospel of John is the last Gospel that's written. It's written around 90, 95 AD, which means it's written 60 years after the life of Christ. And there was something about the Gospel of John that is trying to supplement Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Does that make sense? So something else needed to be said, and this writer, whoever he may be, is developing some extra material for us to understand. And that's where we kind of move in to this mystic element. What is John trying to do with all of these symbols that he brings about? Well, I think what he's trying to do is represented in several things. The Gospel of John is inviting us into more than just knowing historically about these characters. What I think he is trying to do is help us to see what these characters are communicating. So I want to show you a picture. It will bring a tear to my eye and Dan's eye. Okay. Earlier in the week, uh, I found a, um, a portrait of what the expectation was for yesterday's game against the Houston Texans. And we all know how that bottom fell up, right? Well, take a look at these. So, earlier in the week here, okay, that's symbolism. So, the symbolism, the dog, which is kind of a moniker of the Cleveland Browns, is standing over the steer, which is supposed to represent the Houston Texans, right? Okay? And that was our hope. I mean, we're up against a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach. How can we not lose? Well... What happens is you turn the ball over and it changes the whole narrative, right? Well, then all of a sudden this vicious looking dog is represented in Dan and Emma's dog, Hugo. That's the one on the left here. And Brent's dog, Baker. And after they've run around and chased each other, they collapsed on this particular occasion. And that could be a metaphor as well. That when you have kind of spent your energy, when you have kind of spent all that you had within you, there's nothing else to give. And I think what we find is this is a story of two football teams with a number of different players on the offense and the defense, but the symbolism says something. This inspires hope, and this inspires what? Disappointment. Again, we've been let down, that type of thing, but there's always next year. My point in this is I can tell you that the Browns lost to the Houston Texans, but when you see something, 
the symbolism of it has a greater impact. I will venture to say this will probably be the only thing you'll remember about this sermon this morning because it's visual. I have found that after 35 years of ministry that when a pastor stands up to speak, if you ask a person what he talked about by Wednesday, they've already forgotten. But that's okay. Because what we are doing is we're shaping our thinking and we're shaping our spirit as we interact with God's word. Well, historical figures can be wrapped in symbolism. And when that happens, what we, takes place is something that communicates to us. So today, I want to talk a little bit about Mary and Nicodemus. And if you have a Bible... Uh, and incidentally, where our giving kiosk is, there's always some Bibles down on the bottom there if you ever want to pick one up. These are two very lengthy stories. But these stories are communicating something very important that is apropos for our life here in the 21st century. And hopefully by the end of this message, you will see that. So the first story is of... Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she has been invited to a wedding, and as she has been invited to a wedding, we all know the story that the wine runs out. So here's what happens. This particular story is a setup with a hinge in the middle. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, The couple has run out of wine. And then the next paragraph tells us about Jesus entering into the temple and throwing over the tables of the money changers. That's curious because in the other gospels, the cleansing of the temple doesn't come until the end of his ministry. Here it occurs very early in the gospel of John. Why? Because it's a setup for us to understand that the religious zealots that are represented in a person by the name of Nicodemus is the next paragraph that follows. And this important conversation that takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus is, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be, what, born again, which is... Another phrase that only appears in this gospel. You don't find it in the other three gospels. So you have a unique miracle, the changing of the water to wine, that doesn't appear in any of the other gospels. You have a cleansing of the temple that is pushed to the beginning of the book rather than being the impetus that angers the religious authorities that puts Jesus on the cross later in the other three gospels. And then this conversation with Nicodemus, this teacher, this rabbi that comes to Jesus at night and talks about how to have eternal life. Let's go back to this story about Mary for a moment. So in John chapter 2, the way John begins is kind of helping us see a setup that symbolizes what's happening in the ministry of Jesus. Listen, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding 
in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. When Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it, and when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. And Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, what happens in this is quite interesting. If you paid attention to the way the story unfolds, it's the third day. That becomes a theme in the Gospel of John that eventually leads to the resurrection of Jesus on the third day after he's crucified. Secondly, he says to his mother... My hour has not yet come. Why are you asking me to do this? My hour has not yet come. Fast forward in the gospel, the other time the word hour is used is when he is hanging on the cross and the author says that the hour had come for Jesus to display his glory. So there's themes that are tucked in here. And then Another one, there were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. The Jews had all of these rituals that they went through. And one of them was not for cleanliness purposes, but for the idea of ceremonial purification. They would wash their hands as a way of saying that they are getting rid of all the impurities and they are kosher, if you will, in the eyes of God. So here what we find taking place is Mary asked Jesus to provide more wine. And then there are these six stone water jars for Jewish purification. Jesus tells his disciples to fill them with water and the water is changed to wine. And then the steward says, you have saved the best wine till now now. All of this is symbolism. Did it happen historically? Probably, but there's more to it than that. It's interesting the way the other Gospels present Mary. Mary, in the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel that is written, nothing is told of the birth narrative. Nothing is told of the virgin conception. The only thing we're told in the Gospel of Mark about Mary is that when the opposition began to push back on Jesus, she tried to intervene, and you can read this in Mark chapter 3. She tried to intervene by saying, don't pay any attention to Jesus, he's out of his mind. 
His family said he's out of his mind. Now, when we think about that, they might have thought that the claims that he was making about himself was outrageous, right? Or that might have been a way of intervention. You see, why would you arrest someone, put them on trial, and then punish them if they don't have everything kind of connected? Are you following what I'm saying? So when I was growing up, there was um, a boy in our neighborhood. He was a couple years younger than me, and his name was David Brown, and he was an amazing young man, really strong. And uh, where I grew up was a little bit of an incline on the street. street. And I had a 10-speed bike, and I would try to race David Brown up the street. And he had the old standard one-gear, two-wheeler bike. And he never stood up to ride, and yet he could beat me to the top of the street with my 10-speed while he was sitting down on his bike. David had some challenges mentally. He was an individual that was a little bit loud, and at times he said some things that he shouldn't have said. And sometimes that got him into trouble with some of the other kids in the neighborhood, right? Because he would say some things that the other kids would not understand. One time, I remember that he was about ready to be punched in the face for something that he said. And I was there on that occasion, and I said to the other kid, I said, he goes to Weaver School and Workshop. Now, if you're not from Akron, you don't know, Weaver is a specialized school uh, to help people that have certain challenges. And immediately, the other kid, because he knew what Weaver School and Workshop was, backed off. Why? Because all of a sudden, he knew that it wouldn't be right to get into a fight with another individual that had some mental challenges, right? And so, a simple intervention can prevent a disaster. I think that's what Mary is doing in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Matthew and Luke include birth narratives. And we all know the story of Christmas, right? Luke elevates Mary as the virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit that brings the Christ child into the world. But not in John. There's no birth narrative, no virgin Mary. The first thing that we are told about Mary is that she is asking Jesus to use his miraculous powers to continue the wedding feast. The only other place in the Gospel of John where you see Mary is at the foot of the cross. It is there she sees Jesus up on the cross and her dying son says, Behold your son. The portraits of Mary in the Gospel of John is pretty clear. She's at a wedding in the beginning and at the cross in the end. And it is there that we see that 
Mary is kind of a transitional character, symbolically. You see, everything that's in the Gospel of John's account of the wedding at Cana indicates that there's a transition that is coming. This transition that moves away from Judaism and the birth of Christianity. And so what we find is the miracle of the changing of the water is symbolized in these six stone water vessels that are used for Jewish purification. This story is not told in any of the other Gospels as well. So what we find here is a revelation that the hour that points ultimately to the cross that's going to transition from Judaism to Christianity is the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. The wine is the best yet. Now that's an interesting comment. Usually people serve all the inferior wine early, uh, the best wine early and save the inferior after they're drunk for later. But not here. You have saved the best wine until now. The implication is Jesus is the best wine. You could taste this experience with God through Judaism and all that it represents, but new wine is available, and not only available, but in abundance. These six stone water jars contained about 150 gallons of wine. Wow, it's quite abundant, isn't it? Mary is a transitional character in the book of John. And she is dramatically communicating to us through sign and symbol that there is a new era of God's work in the world. The miracle symbolizes that things can change for the better, but only if we do what Jesus says. Notice the disciples they could have pushed back on Jesus. Jesus says, hey, fill those with water. Why? They could have pushed back and said, that doesn't make any sense. The party's already begun. We've already went through all the ritual rites of purification. Why? And yet they do. They follow the lead of Jesus and they fill these water vessels and here we see a transition taking place because they were willing to do what Jesus asked. So tomorrow is Dr. Martin Luther King Day. And in many ways, this miracle symbolizes that things can change, things can get better, things can certainly be enjoyed, but often it takes a period of time and often we have to do what Jesus is asking us to do. The change came only after the disciples did what Jesus asked. And the world will not change until we do what Jesus asked. To love our neighbor as ourselves. The blessings and the abundance of God's love upon all mankind is available to all. But we are the ones that help serve it. We are the ones that help carry out this great call to God's love in the world. 
So we go back and we see now this hinge. I won't read that. But the story is Jesus goes into the temple area in Jerusalem, and there he sees money changers exchanging uh, currency so that they can buy animals to offer as a sacrifice, another symbol of Judaism, the old system that is offering up sacrifices of animals somehow to please God and for God to hear their prayers. Jesus goes in, and as there is any business, there's a lot of shady dealings going on. And in the shady dealings, Jesus comes in and he says, you have turned my house of prayer into a den of robbers. Interesting. Now, the next thing John does is he transitions to a Pharisee. This Pharisee's name is Nicodemus, and this is a rather lengthy section. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to assume that you know the basics of this story. What's interesting about Nicodemus is this. He's a Pharisee that's intrigued. He is an individual that has seen some of the things that Jesus has done and heard some of the things that Jesus has said, but he's afraid. He's afraid that if he does inquire of Jesus out in the open, he's going to get into trouble with his colleagues. So John 3, 1 says, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, or as some translations say, born again. We in the Western church have turned that statement into some some type of ticket to get into heaven. Uh, you, You can't get into heaven unless you're somehow born again, that type of thing. That's not what's at heart here in this passage. What is at heart is... How can I experience the kind of life that you have come to, uh, to bring into the world? And Jesus says, well, you've got to rethink some things. It's almost as if you've got to do life over again. You've got to change the way you think. So Nicodemus is this literary character as well as historical individual that is kind of wavering in no man's land between Jesus and his own religion, and his own set of colleagues. He could lose a lot if he became a disciple of Jesus. So he comes at night, and in this strange introduction to him, what we find is Jesus begins to set this Pharisee up to rethink all that he has thought about his own religion, to contrast the old with the new, old wine, new wine, as we've just seen. So Nicodemus is inquisitive but cautious, and he continues to kind of hide out in the dark, but he is so drawn to Jesus in spite of the cost that he engages in this conversation with Jesus. And here's what Nicodemus responds to when Jesus said, you must be born again, or as it says in the Revised Standard Version, 
without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, tr- very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, fascinating and complicated statement by Jesus that has been debated for hundreds and hundreds of years as to what he meant. But the point here is he tells Nicodemus to get out from his wooden literalness. Okay? How can a man re-enter the womb of his mother? Well, everybody would go, well, that's impossible, right? That's absolutely impossible. He's thinking literally. He is thinking with a box in mind. And yet, God is not bound by the religious establishment represented in Nicodemus. God is free. That's why Jesus will say to him, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. You know, to be born from above is to see things outside the box. Have you ever noticed with religion that many times it forces you to think only within the box? You're not allowed to think outside the box. You're not allowed to think creatively. You're not to allowed to think imaginatively. And many times religion shuts down the type of life that God wants to do in us. The kingdom of God is something to be understood mystically, not just theologically. And so we move into the mystic and we take this voyage to hear the words of Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. And even though Nicodemus understands these things woodenly and literally, we are to move beyond wooden literalism to what is spirit-empowering. And to be born of the spirit is to step into a new dimension of what it means to be human beings. It's the spirit that changes us and molds us. And we should not presume that our initial thoughts about God are always correct. As we take this voyage into the mystic, as we continue to learn and as we continue to grow, our understanding of God changes, doesn't it? And as we uh, move into that, All of a sudden, what helped us, religion, we are all born into this journey toward God through someone or something that planted the seeds, but it shouldn't prevent continued growth. It shouldn't prevent continued understanding. To be born again, you have to take the risk of being born again. What I mean by that None of our thoughts completely capture an accurate understanding of God. And so we continue on this voyage with new insights, remembering there are lights along the shoreway, last week's message, that helps us to understand who God is and what he is like. So Nicodemus is considering new possibilities, but he's not quite ready to proceed. He will make that journey, though. 
The next time we meet him in the Gospel of John, he too is at the foot of the cross. Mary and Nicodemus both find themselves at the foot of the cross and they look upon Christ and they see the power of love and forgiveness when Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Ignorant people, right? So they take Jesus down off the cross. There's a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, another character in the Gospel of John that provides a gravesite for Jesus. But who is there to provide the spices for this one that is going to be placed into the tomb? Nicodemus. He's come out of the shadows. He met Jesus in the dark, but he's stepping out of the shadows. And finally, we see someone that's beginning to take the journey to fully embody what it means to be human, what it means to see God as a God of love, to see other people as being made in the image of God and carrying forth the qualities of human experience that can help us all. Nicodemus, 